Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Hello, I'm the leader, Paul McCartney of the Beatles. Why no, no, why are we here? no. Sh- Alec Guinness, shut up back there. I'm the <laughs> I'm not, leader of the I'm Beatles. Not Alec Guinness anymore. <laughs> oh, who are you? It's me, John. Paul, it's John. Oh, John Lennon. John, John Lennon. We're from, we're from Liverpool. Liverpool, yes. What are we doing here, John? Well, I, I think we've been invited by oh. a friend to talk about our movie that we, was, that we were discussed on a podcast. Have you heard of podcasts, Paul? Are you sure you're not Alec Guinness? <laughs> no, I'm not Alec Guinness. I'm John. Because I've been fooled before. I don't mind telling Look, you. Uh, what, what they don't tell you is that in heaven you still age, and I'm getting to be a very old fellow in heaven, and in heaven I've started to sound a bit like Alec Guinness. I can't quite keep myself as nasally as I used to be. Well, that's a good fact. I, I like uh, like those facts about heaven there, uh, John. I thank, I thank you, Paul, for your uh, attention. But uh, what we're supposed to do, Paul... It's about. It's probably more than you could have imagined. You're a very, you're a very funny guy, Paul. We, 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 uh, we can't wait for you to get up here to heaven and join us. Oh, oh, oh! That's that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> this is a this is a podcast, John. We got to introduce this podcast. It's about British film. I really should have avoided George because he's dead too. I just realised my British accent changed to something else entirely. Well, you know, we all have a hard time keeping it up in heaven. It's a. But anyway, the point is, the point is. Uh, these fellows I know, they invite dead people on their podcast to talk about movies they were in. And we uh, were in that one movie, weren't we, Paul? Oh, yes, we were. We were in that movie on Days Night, Paul. We smoked a lot of weed. We did smoke a lot of weed. It was right in the budget, Paul. That's right. Anyways, they wanted us to say a few words about the movie, Paul. Right on. I like that my accent's consistent, Paul, now, but it's still nothing like John Lennon's actually is, but I try my best to be myself. You made all good smashing points. Yes, but uh, I, I guess uh, while we're here, yeah. what did you think of filming that movie, Hard Day's Night, Paul? Well, I think it was a hard day's night. <laughs> I would agree with that sentiment. <laughs> you remember Ringo came up with that the term? Cause Ringo I came up with that. Who's Ringo? That was me. All of it was me. I wrote the Beatles. I made you up. You're not human. I invented you in a lab. But of course I'm human. I was dead. All right, that's it. You're definitely Alec Guinness. Get out of here. Who will you become now? I don't recognize <laughs> oh, no, no, right? <laughs> but I was Paul McCartney and now I'm someone else. We're going to get back to heaven. Our exits are slipping. All right. But I'm going back to heaven. And I'm going to be slightly more partial than I was before. And I will say that thank you for watching my movie. And enjoy this week's film, which is Checks Notes. Chariots of Fire. Yes, that one. Enjoy. Crikey. What? The what, fuck? What insanity was that? What just happened? 
I mean, we leave the studio for two minutes. First of all, Paul McCartney's not dead. He just walked in. He did. He walked and in on the street. He knows how to summon spirits too, apparently. Well, specifically John, I think. But wait, wait, I would like to point something out here, uh, Jason, because John did mention that your accent starts to slip when you're in heaven. Yeah. Paul's got no excuse. He's still alive. Well, but Paul's quite drunk most of the time, as I understand. Allegedly. What was that you were saying? Paul, th- the exit's that way, dude. Yeah, there's, there's liquor in the hall, Paul. Okay, then. Cheerio. <laughs> but okay, my, hold on, my chair keeps fucking. We we thank those gentlemen for that introduction, uh, which didn't really help much. But uh, they are correct. We are watching a movie this week mm-hmm. called Chariots of Fire. But before we talk about that, this is a podcast, Jason. We jumped right into it. This is a mm. podcast called For Screen. Ad Godre. And we talk about the British Film Institute Top 100 British Films of All Time as curated in the year of our Lord, 1999, on the British Isles aboard the Carpathia. The year we parted like it was was also the year that these films were set in stone as the only British films that are ever worthy of any consideration. Not the 100 best, the the 100 Films. Yes, the 100 films in the canon of Britain. Someday this will be the Bible of, of Britain, will be these films. Someday. Well, it's getting there. It's, I've been talking to BJ a lot lately, and uh, we've been having some real deep conversations. The local comedian BJ Worthy? No, the uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. <laughs> okay. uh, but BJ Worthy was invited to the phone call, but she's very busy and does not have time for Mr. Johnson. <laughs> But her name is BJ. I know, and that's what I said. I said, obviously you want to talk to him because you guys share initials. And she's like, well, number one, that's a stage name. It's not a real name. And number two, fuck him, and then hung up on me. But number three, as a as a, as a retort, mm. his name is Johnson and your name is BJ. You guys fit hand in hand. I don't think that's how that works. I think a blowjob is with your hand, mm. and you link with another person's hand. Oh, I see. And then you wrap it around the testicles. Okay. You put an elastic around that. Obviously. And you yank up and down mm. while shutting obscenities. That does sound pretty fun. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try that later with my wife, which is real. And I have a real wife, and she's a real person, and I swear. Was she from Canada? <laughs> she is from Canada. Oh, that's, okay. That's a fact. Okay, Jason. <laughs> How come I've never met her? <laughs> she doesn't care for beards. That's fair. Except mine. What? Isn't she your beard? <laughs> oh, zing! Brendan is on fire today! Oh, but we got a movie to talk about. So we're going to talk about, like I said, we're going to talk about this movie, Chariots of Fire. But before we talk about Chariots of Fire, we need to read some comments about last week's film, A Hard Day's Night. Um, our first comment about A Hard Day's Night comes from Catherine and Marie. Big shout out to Catherine. Hi, Catherine. You're great. Hi. We go back. It's very clean. Thank you, Catherine. It's Thank a, it's a, I thought it was a funny reference. That's fun. Yeah, it's a fun reference to the movie we watched. I love it. And now you can read one that's just as long as that comment. No problem. Uh, uh, uh. Our friend Aylan Allen writes, a childhood favorite off a taped, a childhood favorite taped off TV on a VHS tape. Great music, great characters, magnificent fun accents, nice bits of conflict, and some good pathos at times with Ringo taking some of the best comic and dramatic moments. It is just a great comedy classic with superb energy. It is mixing the quips with some great old-fashioned silent film jokes. Man stealing car, Ringo causing havoc in a bar, acting the acting soldier pouring ketchup on his wound, as I said during the time, you know, it was very silent filming. A film I love to act out with my friends in the pub if there ever is a quiet moment, most who haven't seen it. 
While all got Scouse accents from Liverpool, the four are also quite distinct, which is just great fun to impersonate. The whole George denying the man as Paul's grandfather is my favorite routine. I could go on further, but the one film that has been covered, albeit as a Brit pick, I think is so spiritually close to this is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Just focus on the fun and comedy and happy to jump out of the world or the train for the sake of fun when the joke when it works. For the sake of a fun joke? I can't read today. Just focus on the fun and comedy and happy to jump out of the world or the train for the sake of a fun joke when it works. Thank you, ALN. Yes, it is. It's very fun. It's I, I love the idea of acting it out in the pub. That's a, <laughs> a fun time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the things you can do without getting kicked out, mm, which mm. is few and far between now. Yeah, I know. I mean, ever since, you know, hashtag pubs, pubs it. Pubs exit. Pubs, pubs exit. <laughs> so, so wait. So you're saying that pubs are now sovereign, their own sovereign territory within Britain? Not with that attitude. No. Well, I am for pub dependence, is what I'm saying. So we got Eric Chung's comment here. Um, I am a huge Beatles fan. Maybe that means I should recuse myself. But I love the movie. I started on the Beatles as a high school freshman when the anthology was broadcast on ABC. That was a big time. That was a big time. I remember seeing it around that time, too. Uh, Then I saw Help, then Yellow Submarine. Then there was a jam-packed DVD release of A Hard Day's Night and re-released to theaters in 2001. So I saw it by myself one morning at BU's Nickelodeon Theater. The only other people in the theater were a mother and little boy. On the way out, he said it would be cool if Help was in cinemas again. I saw it again around my birthday in 2009 when Beatles Rock Band was released. That's a great game. There was a much bigger crowd at the Somerville Theater. The host asked who was seeing this for the first time. When some people raised their hands, one woman exclaimed, You're all so lucky. (laughs) After the screen, there was a Beatles Rock Band contest. Um, I already tried the game at Best Buy, singing And Your Bird Can Sing. Since I had no idea what the difference was between difficulty levels when it comes to singing, I just picked hard and joined a family who picked Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. The little girl who was on drums was named Lucy, but the audience thought the choice was corny. I got honorable mention and a gift pack. (laughs) Nice. There was a storyboarding exercise we had to do in film school, so I chose the sequence with Ringo and the boy at the water. My girlfriend looks at the movie as one that makes clear how much Britain was still reeling from the Blitz, with charred out buildings just in the background. But as most have correctly observed, the joy of it all. It's infectious, just as much it's a bit of a manufactured piece of rebellion filtered through Alan Owen's acclaimed script. Big fan, Eric. Thank you for the comment. That's uh, lovely that that movie means so much to you. Yeah. But now we have a word from Sharon Horwat, a mm-hmm. founding uh, commenter, who yes. says, uh, I haven't seen it, <laughs> as many of her comments do, but we still want to hear from her. But my sister, who is a huge Beatles fan, absolutely loves it. I have seen Yellow Submarine, which is very different, but it has one of my favorite lines, which is uh, when all the Beatles all become babies and one of them says, I want me mum. That's probably, that's pretty funny. I always think of uh, on The Simpsons when they're, I, I don't remember what episode it was, but somebody's having like a uh, Yellow Submarine hallucination mm-hmm. and all and the four beetles are in the, the the sub and it starts to crash at one point and they just go help us help us <laughs> and it always makes me laugh i do have to ask you why were we never given a cartoon series beetle babies because we got muppet babies well the beat and i think the beetles did have an animated series for a little while but not babies but not babies no lame uh beth i apologize if i'm pronouncing this incorrectly but i'm gonna go with beth snade 
Snade. Yeah, uh, says the scene where George is a one-man focus group is just as relevant today as it was then. Absolutely, one hundred percent. It's still it's still as relevant. Uh, also, um, and it, it just I just want to add this one here, and then I'll let you take the next two because David Hansen also chimes in on that same comment and says the other guy is trying to tell his boss. You can see him very obviously mouthing that that's George Harrison. Um, <laughs> the entire scene is hilarious. I never noticed no, that. Me neither. The, I, that the guy was always like bugging his boss while he's doing the pitch about like getting George to decide on clothing and whether it's hip or whatever. I never noticed that the guy was saying, no, no, this is not the guy. This is George Harrison. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. Brittany Keegan writes in, she says, I tell people all the time that I didn't get the Beatles until I saw a hard day's night. It took seeing them joking around, seeing the jokes they made, seeing how cool they were at a time when that kind of cool wasn't the norm to get how they became the phenomena they were and are. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, they, they, contextually, this this shows you what the the first kind of phase of the Beatles was and how they became such a prominent thing in people's consciousness. I don't even know how I got the Beatles. Well, that's the thing, Brendan. Is it for you and me growing up? Like for us, the Beatles just exists. It's in the ether. Like we were both yeah. born long after the Beatles had broken up, right? So I mean, I, technically, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go further with that jason no, you don't but, need to investigate but yeah but for us that is just part of almost like the musical canon that mm-hmm. exists it, so you just you come to it you don't discover it so much it's just mm-hmm. always there it's just when you finally choose to acknowledge it i mean i think i was one of the first people on my block that told everyone who the beatles were yeah you were into them before they were cool yeah, back yeah, in yeah. 1994 yeah dude right before the beatles anthology aired on abc you were already listening to the beatles mm-hmm when they came on Ed Sullivan, I was like, mm, "It's not cool to like them anymore." Yeah, I like I. Hey, man, Stuart Sutcliffe all the way. <laughs> all right, what do you got? Uh, we got uh, Brett Sonnashine, another great name. Says probably the greatest movie musical ever made. It still crackles with energy, mystery, and the excitement of a new day. Often imitated, never duplicated, is a cliche, but in this case, it's the truth. This has been Andy Rooney. (laughs) You ever notice how the Beatles only made a couple of movies? What's with that? And why weren't they in Sgt. Pepper? It's named after one of their albums. Surely they knew that, having likely been giving producer credits on the film. I don't know. I didn't read the credits myself, but I'm sure their names are there. (laughs) This has been Andy Rooney. Fuck off. One of cl- one of Andy Rooney's classic later uh, later years rants when he just had it with everything. All right, all right, we got one more comment, Brendan. Yep. Let's do it. Yeah. So our last comment is from Mike Vago, and Mike says this movie is a miracle. It not only works as a comedy, a musical, a music video, a concert film, a documentary. It does all of those things at a Hall of Fame level. Even Richard Lester and the Beatles couldn't pull it off twice. Helps musical sequences are delightful, but the rest of the movies are pretty slapdash. Huh. I've not seen help. No, me neither. But it's I think not on this list. I think we're gonna. I think we're going to at some point. It would, it would attract that we would watch it at some point. Yes, if you follow the canon. All yes. right, all right, Jason. Favorite part here. We uh, we take the uh, the hard days night, which is number eighty eight on the BFI top one hundred. We compare it with number eighty eight on the AFI top one hundred, and it is a screwball comedy out of nineteen thirty eight called Bringing Up Baby. Is that a Preston Sturgis movie? No, it's a Howard Hawks movie oh, with Cary uh, Grant and Catherine Hepburn. That sounds delightful. Have not seen it. So by default, Our Day's Night, a better movie. 
I'm going to give it to A Hard Day's Night as well, just because I think Bringing Up Baby is a really fun screwball comedy. There are a few of those on yeah. the AFI list, though, so it's not like as I don't think it's as foundational yeah. as that as this movie was. So I think yeah, Hard Day's Night wins this round. Mark it on the wall. So now, Jason, we need to talk about this week's film. We need to talk about Chariots of Fire. Let us praise famous men and our fathers that begat us. All these men were honored in their generations and were a glory in their day. We are here today to give thanks for the life of Harold Abrahams, to honor the legend. Now there are just two of us, young Aubrey Montague and myself, who can close our eyes and remember those few young men with hope in our hearts and wings on our heels. And that totally obscure theme that you've never heard before in your life can only mean one thing, Jason. It is the 1981 film, Chariots of Fire. Which and it burns, burns, burns. Chariots, Chariots of Fire. fire. Chariots, Chariots of Fire. Okay, so... Taste uh, of sweat is sweet. Yeah. Okay. So I knew this was about something like this. I didn't know that it was specifically running. I didn't remember that fact. I just knew it was old-timey and it was about this. But I tell you, if you don't know anything about this movie and you walk into a movie called Chariots of Fire, that sounds so goddamn badass. Like there's going to be a, there's a fire chariot. It's on fire and there's going to be a huge battle. But instead, the chariots, I believe, based on my research and discussions with my wife, are their feet and the fire burns inside is the speed oh and that explains why at the beginning of this movie we see them running through water because mm-hmm. their chariots are on fire whoa and there's the central metaphor of the movie right there in the opening 45 seconds yeah a little bit of a heavy-handed start yeah but but i mean that's kind of what this movie is now Heavy-handed is a way to describe it, but I don't think that's the case. What I believe, Brendan, what I believe is key to... I'm just talking about that opening scene, yeah, not well, necessarily talking about the Even the, the whole movie. movie. So, there's, so this movie is a very beautiful movie. Like, like from a cinematography perspective, from a, like just straight-up shots, the use of slow motion, this is a movie that is almost hued in a, in a late-summer golden sunshine of nostalgia. I'm sensing a take here. 
Yeah, but 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 what's key to understanding this movie, from my view, is that it is a memory. Because at the beginning of this movie, we have that scene at the funeral. He's talking about you know Abramson and um, and about that there's only two of them left. This movie, Brendan, is a memory. Because at the beginning of the movie, we see the guys on the, the pulpit. He's talking about uh, is it Abramson? Abram. Paul Bettany. No, on the pulpit. He's at the pulpit. <laughs> Paul Bettany could be in this movie if they remade yeah, it now. Quite a young sure. child. He's, yeah. he's a bit old, but he might be able to pull it off. <laughs> they all look super old anyways, even though they're supposed to be like in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this movie is a memory, and it's from his perspective. And that is why the movie has this almost heightened reality to it. I never thought about that. Yeah, and because I, I was watching it, and, and heavy-handed. The idea of it being heavy-handed came through my head, and that it was really, like, really Oscar-baity and, and over-dramatic. But that's, Warren's brother. Yeah, exactly. But that's because it's a memory. This is filtered through this guy's recollection mm. of these events. This is uh, imbued with his nostalgia and his memory of it, and it's why it is so over-dramatic, because in his mind, that's how he remembers it. And this is um, from the perspective of Eric, right? Eric Little? So that, to me, helped me kind of frame this movie a little better as to what it was trying to do. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. That's my theory. No, that's a good theory. And, like, something I didn't even think about because... And I'm not saying it uh, necessarily as a positive or negative thing, but the movie is... Um, right from the beginning, it's very heavily symbolic yeah. because we have those guys running down the beach all in white, yep. all running in the unison, and he even refers to them as angels yes. in that first uh, in that opening uh, speech we heard. Also, why is Little running with his mouth wide open? He's just going to get a mouthful of fucking sand, and he does, I think, at one point. He runs like an animal. He scares me. <laughs> he does. But there, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it does start out with that very dreamlike uh, sequence, which I don't even know if the movie is trying to say happened in real life. Like, I don't know. And you mentioned like the, this guy's, this is this guy's story and it's very like, you know, glossy and everything. Mm. I'm wondering if that's like, not like meant to be taken literally. You know what? I, I think it's possible. Like I, it's a, an overdramatic take on what would be a bunch of dudes training. They would be running down this beach. It would just like in, in a different movie, like, in the gritty, realistic version of this movie, it would, like, be a long shot of a bunch of these guys, like, way down the beach, and you would just watch them run up the beach and then run by the camera. Mm-hmm. And that would be, like, the, the realistic... But this is the cinematic, like, with that with that crazy... Uh, what's the guy's name? Vingella? Vingella? Uh, score? His name is... His name, is Ven- his name is Vangelis. Vangelis, that's yes. it, yes. And you know what? I'm glad... Okay, so you would you argue, like, first of all, the music. Yes. The music is... Iconic. Iconic is the word. Absolutely. Iconic, so much so that people know the song yeah. more than they do the movie. No, the song is a yeah. The song is a pop culture touchstone that spans the ages. That has been in everything you probably have ever watched at some point. Yeah, especially if somebody is doing something in slow motion or yeah. is running. So many things. So many, like you mentioned, like so many TV shows, so many movies, so many yeah. everything has you could used spend the song. Hours on TV tropes. I'm sure going through the the article on it. My question is, watching it in its origins yeah. here, um, it's hard to separate it from that. Yes. Because you watch it, and I'm sure, I'm sure at the time, yeah. this was wonderful, like, uplifting yeah. music that just hits you right in the feet, right, in the, yeah. right where it counts, you know? And I would argue it does once it you does. get past this initial layer of, of cringiness, I but, guess you would almost call it, because it is so cliched by the pop culture. Well, that's what I mean, because now you listen, you watch this scene with this music, and you're like... Yeah. 
you, I, I don't know. I laughed because all uh, I could yes. think of was like all the goofy exactly. shit that has used this music. Every single sketch, every single cartoon, every single thing. Yes, that music immediately calls to mind which, all of it. You know, of course, you can't blame on the movie, no. but but it's this thing of like, well, it loses a little bit of that timelessness. I think it, it's almost like, and I always point to Casablanca, the end of Casablanca, as this because he gives that speech at the end of the movie, you know, where he does the, you know, doesn't mean a hill of beans in the world, and it, it's almost like listening to somebody read like a really popular passage of the Bible because it's like every single line is a cliche and it's like boom 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 but it's just because it's so prevalent in pop culture that when you hear it all together with modern ears it just it sounds weird yeah and once you get over it you can appreciate it it's but. crazy to it's hard it's really hard to place yourself in that moment and say yeah. in 1942 or in this case in 1981 this was not a cliche yeah this was a brand new i actually before we even because i want to just kind of sum up the plot a little bit but before we do that do you want to hear the music that vangelis almost used for chariots of fire sure because at first he composed the he he had this theme he called la fin and he uses it for another movie actually a movie called the year of living dangerously with starring mel gibson um plays throughout that movie but he almost used it for this movie so you almost never got this by the way so let's take a listen and uh See Maybe. if it would work. We'll, we'll picture that opening scene. We'll picture them running down the beach, but with this music playing instead. Exactly. to me sounded like I had a little bit of local hero hmm. yeah no, I, I really think that somebody must have said to him like I like the vibe you're going for but give me something different and because that I think that song could have perfectly served that same function as the chariots of fire but obviously chariots of fire is iconic now because of this movie I think there's less going on in that yes. piece of music than there is in the finished product, but that the, feels like a rough draft. Yeah, it, but, but the thing that really sells it to me that he was that he did have a specific vibe in mind is that just that pulsing synth, that down, 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 yeah. down, 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 well, like that that kind of sense of anticipation and and discovery and and that's the main thing about this song is that this this kind of freak people's gourd a little bit. Yeah, no, it because should have. This is a nineteen. This is a movie that take, taking place in the nineteen twenties. Uh, the 1924 Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, usually in a period piece up to this point, you'd have this sweeping music, this dramatic yeah. piece, like, you know, this music that was more akin to the time. Or or you might even have, especially today, you might have a contemporary take on it where it's like a lot of like big band and swing and shit that is very of the era. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
he decided to go in a completely different route. Mm. He said, I want to get this 1980s electronic sound with synthesizer and piano and, uh, you know, these, these get rid of these big orchestrals. So, um, and the director had collaborated with Vangelis, the, the composer before on like different documentaries and, uh, commercials. Mm-hmm. He, he actually also did some music for the, uh, Robert De Niro movie, uh, Midnight Express. Okay. So that's how the producer knew him as well. David Neat. Putnam. Um, he said he, he said basically the reason he wanted to give it this music to, of like another era is because he wanted the movie to feel modern in a way. He knows like you know the movies like the twenties it's it's got it's got to be you know appropriate to the period but he wanted to give it a modernity yeah um, that people could like be easily more easily relate to I yeah. guess which is an interesting idea because from our perspective I you know I I. I'm, my feelings on this soundtrack are complicated, but like it is from a modern perspective, it is very dated. Mm-hmm. It is very much of the era of the eighties, and if that was his intent, and while it might have worked at the time, that's probably not how it comes across now to mm-hmm. modern ears. It certainly doesn't yeah. come across that way to me. I don't feel like, oh yeah, it's such a modern. No, it's like this is so nineteen eighty one. But then you got to think it's like nineteen eighty one, so it's got that eighties vibe yeah. of what they're going for to make it modern. But then you got to think like, oh, but it's taking place in 1924 so this yeah. would have been modernizing it for the time see i i think to me like to go along with my my theory of this being a memory what what this soundtrack does do is that it helps add to the dreamlike quality of the film that it that it gives you that impression that this isn't this isn't like a a docudrama of a of an event this is something different this is something more impressionistic um, and I like that part of it because it, because it does feel out of place at certain points. Like you and I have watched a lot of British movies so far of different eras and different musics and everything. And this, and, and while I do like the soundtrack and I like the sound in a vacuum, also at certain points of this movie, it does feel feel weirdly out of place. But by the end of it, I had accepted it as being a function of this idea of it being a memory. And 1978, that music existed. Maybe that's what that dude listened to in the car on his way to the funeral. And so it was in his head. He was listening to some fucking Vangelis in his eight track as he was bopping his way over to the funeral home to talk about his dead friend, mm-hmm. co-teammate. <laughs> Maybe they didn't get along. I don't know. He seemed pretty happy about it though that he was dead. Was that was that how it came across to you that he was super happy this guy was dead? Uh, not particularly, but oh. I watched the director's cut, so oh, maybe they okay. took that out. Speaking of which, random side thing. You probably have it in your uh, in your facts, but there was a weird. Slightly different scene in the American release of this movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, let's talk about. I want to sure. mention it just because. So at the very beginning of the movie, we see a scene where they are inside playing, in a ballroom playing cricket. Playing cricket. Yeah, it's a lovely scene of English jocularity. A bunch of these rich upper class twats hanging out with each other, mm-hmm. and you know, being rich upper class twats and playing uh, cricket inside. Uh, so yeah, so I didn't think anything of it, but then I learned through my deep research that there was originally a scene in the American version that cuts that bit and replaces with two of them going to the train station and running into some returning soldiers from World War One who flip somebody off or make a rude gesture only so that the movie would get a PG, a PG rating in the United States. Yep. And that that would not, uh, accrue the, the, uh, um. What's the word I'm looking for? So basically, the reason G movies have a bit of a thing about them. at at, a to- at that time, yeah. not so much now because now I don't think anyone really cares. But at that time, to be rated G is basically akin to being a kids movie, yes. and they didn't want Chariots of Fire to have that or a religious movie. 
Yeah, but I mean, I think also they were afraid that people would think it was a children's movie, which though. Most which certainly is not. A children would have no interest in this movie. Maybe in 1981 when they had more attention spans. <laughs> okay, 1981. Let's see. What? Could, hey, 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 Siri. What was the top grossing movie of 1981? I couldn't find exactly what you were looking for, but here are some films. Escape from New York came out that year. The kids would rather see Escape from New York than they would see fucking Chariots of Fire. I don't know that I want my kids seeing Escape from New York. Well, you you clearly are not going to be a good father if that ever happens. <laughs> you need to show them what that dad did at the theater the day I went. It took his 10-year-old son to see fucking Dread, and I was judged him at first, and then later it was like, that dad's awesome, because that movie was awesome. <laughs> What were we talking about? Uh, we were talking about Chariots of Fire starring um, Ian Holm. We haven't even gotten into the cast. <laughs> or the, this is the longest All right, let's we've talk gone, about the cast. But this is the longest we've gone. I just want to note right now, without mentioning the plot or the cast, but I feel like the plot in this movie is very, very simplistic, yeah. and I feel like the cast is great, though. So let's, let's go through the cast. Well, let's, uh, quickly, I'll boil the plot down. Okay. So okay. we have... Uh, we have uh, we follow uh, Harold, two characters. Harold Abramson, is that his name? Abrahams. Abrahams. Harold Abrahams and uh, Eric Little. They mm-hmm. are uh, racers at, I think it's Cambridge. Well, they, one's, they run. one's at Cambridge and one's in Scotland. All right, yeah. So they, they are runners, and then we kind of see their progression as they approach going to the 1924 Olympics, where they both respectively do quite well. And they have a little bit of a rivalry between each other. But mostly the rivalry is in their is respective of yes. each character, yes. which we'll get into. Um, but this movie stars Ben Cross as Harold Abrahams. Mm-hmm. And actually, I just want to mention, and I know you're going to mention this, so I'm going to mention it before we even say anything, yeah. but he was in the Star Trek remake. He was. He played Sarek in Star Trek 2009. And he just passed away Unfortunately, um, a yes. few weeks ago. Yeah, I know. So that was sad. Very upset. When I saw his name in there, I'm like, no, not Sarek again, because we already lost Mark Leonard, who played Sarek in the original Star Trek. And so I'm not, I'm not a uh, real... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm worried for the guy that's playing Sarek in Discovery right now. And I mean, I, I mean, if, as far as my you know fan fandom, uh, just a few weeks ago lost Chadwick Boseman, so yeah, it's a huge out of yeah. nowhere thing to happen. But also, heads up, we're, we have another Star Trek connection in this cast, so we'll, well get there when we get there. All right. Well, next up, we got Ian Charleston playing Eric Little. Yes, he is the uh, the Scottish uh, uh, runner. Yes, wonderful, uh, wonderful actor. We have Nicholas Farrell playing Aubrey Montague. He is the uh, the friend of Harold Abrahams. Young Aubrey Montague, as the guy says in the beginning. Yeah. We have Nigel Havers as Lord Andrew Lindsay. He must who, be the guy we saw at the funeral. He he is yes, I think you're right. And he is a Cambridge runner, and he's actually based on two characters, two yes. real life people, David Burgley and Douglas Lowe. And that's because the actual person that he was going to be based on said no. Yes. Douglas Lowe said he did not want to be. He did not want his name in the movie. He didn't want to be used Even in the movie. Even though they technically didn't have to ask him because it's they a historical didn't, but they picture. Res- but they respected yes, his absolutely. request. They did that for a number of different people in the film. Ian Holm is in this movie. Yes, as our old buddy. Sam Musabini, uh, Abraham's running coach. I'm pretty sure Ian Holm was never in Star Trek, but he was an alien, so he's got <laughs> that going for him. We have John Gilgood. Making another appearance yes. as uh, the master of Trinity College, he's one of those. He's one of the two old white guys. Yes, one of the great um, old British actors. What I love is that the other old white guy is played by a director named Lindsay Anderson, who actually directed This Sporting Life. Oh, and he directed um, at least one other movie that's coming up on this list that we you haven't mean the, done yet. The two dudes that talk to uh, Abrams when he's uh, when they say it's like, oh, he's a yeah a semite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of the guys. Uh, Cheryl Campbell as Jenny Little. Uh, 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 Eric's sister mm-hmm. um, Alice Krieg as Sybil Gordon who eventually is uh, 
Abraham's love interest. Also, Alice Krieg famously played the Borg Queen in Star Trek First Contact oh, and in later episodes of, uh, at least one or two later episodes of Star Trek Voyager. She did not reprise her role initially, but she did come back for the end of the series. And also famously of the Silent Hill film. Oh, with Sean Bain. Who doesn't die in that movie. Of all movies, yeah. based on a survival horror video game, <laughs> Sean Bean survives. Uh, we also have Nigel Davenport, who shows up again, uh, playing Lord Birkenhead, the member of the uh, British Olympic Committee who counsels the athletes. Mm-hmm. And Patrick McGee yeah. as Lord Cadogan, um, the chairman of the British Olympics Committee. Who is, and this is just, I just love this because this is how Wikipedia reads this character, who is unsympathetic to Little's religious plight. So we've got two... Two stories here. We've got Abraham's, played by Ben Cross, who is a Jewish man. Yes. A self-hating Jew, I guess you would describe him, kind of, maybe? I don't know if I'd describe him as self-hating any more I mean, than anybody else. I mean, just... I, I just I think he's, he's annoyed with, with the disadvantages that his Judaism brings him simply because he's Jewish. Yeah. What, I want to um, give a big praise to the movie right here because I like the way, that for his character specifically, obviously you need to see that... School is a little prejudiced. You know, they have some views on, Jew- on Jews in 1924 that maybe yeah. wasn't so good. Yeah. Um, but they pre- present it in a way that's not overt. This is not Green Book. Yeah, this is no, not like shoving it yeah, in your they're, face. They're not, call- they're, they're not calling them the K-word and shoving them into lockers or something or, or you know, beating them up. It's, and even- it's much more of the typical kind of it, – it's more typical of the racism that, that might that, – you know, often still exists in society where it's, it's not like aggressive in your face. It's very passive. And it has this very like – I don't know. For me, it was kind of eerie to watch because knowing this movie takes place in 1924 and knowing what's going to happen in like – less than 20 years after that it takes on a whole other meaning for to, to me when i'm watching it because i'm yeah. like oh it's just gonna keep kind of brewing at and that it, point. it reminds you that that anti-semitism was not exclusive to germany no. it was a very widespread attitude across all nations uh uh for a very long time and still is uh, well i mean and let's let's uh Let's play a scene here. I want to play a scene that kind of this to me is like the heightened, not the heightened, but this is to me is like the biggest part where they kind of bring his like bring the anti-Semitism into the movie is where he's talking to the two older gentlemen who run and the school. They schools. start goose stepping around the room. <laughs> nope. <laughs> they, um, this is when they found out that he's hired a uh, a coach. Yes. And this coach is uh, well. They anyway. You'll hear it. This is this again. Uh, I read a passive. Racism. Very passive, um, but effective. And again, this is why I like this part of the movie, is that it's not done in an obvious way. Abrahams, I'm afraid there is a growing suspicion in the bosom of this university. And I tell you this without in any way decrying your achievements, in which we all rejoice, that in your enthusiasm for success, you perhaps lost sight of some of these ideals. May I ask what form this disloyalty this betrayal takes oh hardly betrayal the word grief was mentioned it said that you use a personal coach mr massabini yes is he an italian of italian extraction yes i see but not all italian i'm relieved to hear it he's half arab do we take it that you employ this mr massabini on a professional basis. Sam Massabini is the finest, most advanced, clearest thinking athletics coach in the country. 
I am honored that he considers me worthy of his complete attention. Nevertheless, he's a professional. What else would he be? He's the best. Ah, but there, Mr. Abrahams, I'm afraid our paths diverge. You see, this university believes that the way of the amateur is the only one to provide satisfactory results. I am an amateur. You've been trained by a professional. You've adopted a professional attitude. For the past year, you've concentrated wholly on developing your own technique in the headlong pursuit, may I suggest, of individual glory. Not a policy very conducive to the fostering of esprit de corps. I am a Cambridge man first and last. I am an Englishman first and last. What I have achieved, what I intend to achieve, is for my family, my university, and my country. And I bitterly resent your suggesting otherwise. So there's a lot going on in that scene. Yeah, a lot he, of like subtext. It's like oh, right out of the gate when he says your your enthusiasm for uh, a success or whatever is is very much. It's very much just like oh, you you greedy Jewish person, you. Or yeah, well, he even says like you're um, you you hired a professional. Yeah. And this also too to get political for a sec. This too also is indicative. Of, this is like the root of like the amateur system today of this idea of of being an amateur as being pure in sporting. Uh, but what it really means at a practical level is that you don't get paid, mm-hmm. right? So that's part of the the big deal with like college football and stuff is that these guys that play college football dedicate their lives to this program that makes so much money. For the schools and and, and they don't get a cent of it, and they don't get a, a red cent of it. Now they they do uh, around the rules. They do get stuff. They can get stuff if they're willing to bend the rules. Um, but that shouldn't be a key thing. Like it's. I mean, I understand what their intent is in trying to preserve amateurism, but one wonders if it's uh, partially racist in nature. Like if it's because if you think about like universities, a lot of minority people to play sports. If I mean, that is the case. Then honestly, a lot of like quote-unquote amateur or like intern work nowadays like like most of that i say good portion of that should be paid work yeah obviously we we agree on that point for sure i mean if lena dunham's work ethic has taught us anything it's don't be like lena dunham and actually pay your fucking staff (laughs) she hired all volunteers i just want to point that out yeah that's i mean i want to i would i want to like lena dunham but i want to i want to like her but she makes it very difficult you you got to pay people lena that i can look overlook a lot of shit if you just pay people whatever skeletons you got in your closet lena i'm willing to overlook them if you just pay your staff some weird stuff in her book (laughs) and hey ellen ellen knock it off Ellen's actually a frequent listener, so you want to you want to give her a little personal message. Look, Ellen, I always liked you as a stand-up, and I once got in trouble for using one of your jokes. Which I mean, don't sue me, but uh, uh, I've I've gone to bat for you, Ellen, and it turns out you're shitty. Come on, this has been the end of uh, Hey, Ellen, what's up with that? <laughs> Ooh, what up with that? <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, there's that. I think that scene that that's again that's an example of what I like about this movie. But this scene it, that sounded horrible. It sounds like I like the racism in this movie. <laughs> no, but the scene is like it, indicative of how they handle that sort yeah. of thing. But um, so let's talk about like let's focus on the one guy first. Let's focus on Abraham's because yes. he's a Jewish guy. Yep. He's he feels persecuted. Obviously, we heard that and he is. He clearly is. It's not just that he is. feels it. He is. Yeah. Um, he even has like this conversation by the fireplace. I think that's another one of the really, really good scenes. He's talking to his friend Montague and he says, you know, I feel it even when, even though it's like a subtle thing, even just like, you know, 
an awkward movement in their hand when they shake my hand mm. or like a, a slight look off to the side or something yeah, it, like that. It's those little and, and, and people hate this term, but it's it's true. Microaggression. That's right? what it is. It's a microaggression. And, yeah. and and when you I imagine and of course us being white guys, we don't have any concept of it because it doesn't really occur to us. Not to us, no. But but from you know, researching this stuff, like I, I can only imagine what that must be like. Like all the time getting that shit just day after day after day and it's just getting so annoying. I mean there's anything. There's even like a small moment here where uh, one of the first time he's one of the first times he runs Abraham's um, this guy jokingly yells out do it for Israel and <laughs> it's funny but like the look he gives is, yeah. is it's not it's very subtle because yes. I think Ben Cross is fantastic in this role um, but it's very subtle of like yeah okay but, but also what that comment what a guy shouting do it for Israel assumes because we have to remember this is in 1924 this is uh, Israel as a state does not exist Israel is still an idea mm-hmm. Israel is the object of uh, Zionists that want to establish an Israeli homeland so when you say do it for Israel you are assuming a lot about this particular Jew's feelings What's on I mean? Israel because not all Jews were down with with the idea of Israel mm-hmm. but a good chunk of them were and yeah so I'm sure that again that annoyance of having people assume they have any idea about what you believe based only on who they think you are yeah exactly and it's it, the whole movie really when you break it down it's about conviction it's about having yes. con- having one's own conviction that's a running theme and it's about I mean, stereotyping and being prejudiced and all that stuff, but it, but staying true to yourself. Yes. As corny as that sounds. Yes. But, um, because... But, no, it is corny, but that's fine. Because, again, it, it is a memory. It is this guy's perception of the past that, it, that, that these this is the romanticized take that his memory has formed about this story that he lived through. Yeah. No, and I mean, I'm not, no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying when I describe it like that, it sounds a little corny. Like, you be yeah. true to yourself. Yeah. But um, but those themes are definitely in the movie. Like, like yeah, in, in the spirit of competition and, and pushing yourself. And So he goes on this path of, like, he's, he's a Jewish guy. He mm-hmm. always, he's always feeling – he's always – people are always making him feel lower than. We even see that in one of the first scenes where, you know, he goes to register. And the guy right at the desk gives him a hard time. And he says, "You know, you're not going to call me Laddie. I was in the, I was, I was in the military. You're going to refer to me as my name. You know, you're not going to do this bullshit and treat me like lesser than." Um, and he, it's almost like he does the running to kind of forget about everything else because he even says in a scene, uh, which I, I do want to play another scene here, um, where he goes on a date with the singer in the movie. Um, Sybil, the the mu- music the. Opera singer? What do you call her? Uh, yeah, the she, the yeah, racist she, singer? She, yeah. <laughs> she's uh, she's an actress, I suppose. Musical musical actress. They're doing this... Uh, <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan, Three Little Girls from School, yeah. Doesn't play as well today. No, but that's just that's Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. And There's a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan songs. Yes, a lot. Oh, they, they, well, and, and that was the thing I said to Katrina while I was watching this. It's like, I only know these songs because I watched The Simpsons. Because they sideshow Bob sang a good chunk of them. Like, especially the I am an Englishman, you know, or forever an Englishman or whatever it is. But listen to the scene where he has the date with her because he talks about, they talk about why they do what they do. And I think this really kind of speaks to his journey and why he does it. You didn't look very ruthless. Should I? According to my brother. Tim says that's why you always win. Why running? Why singing? My job. No, that's silly. I do it because I love it. 
Do you love running? I'm more of an addict. It's a compulsion, a weapon. Against what? Being Jewish, I suppose. <laughs> You're not serious. You're not Jewish, or you wouldn't ask. Fiddlesticks. People don't care. Being Jewish hasn't done you any harm. I'm what I call semi-deprived. That sounds clever. What does it mean? It means they lead me to water, but they won't let me drink. You're a funny old stick, Mr. Harold Abrams. Funny. But fascinating. Oh, settle for the fascinating. So yeah, he says he does it to forget about everything else that he faces. Mm. Which is like, you know, I do it as an escape. Well, and also as a way to, like, prove himself, I suppose, yeah. that, that he's more than the sum of his identity. Well, and we have lots of scenes where you see an example of that. Like, we, t- we played the scene earlier where he's dealt with that scene where they're being pretty su- subtly racist towards mm. him, and right after that, he finds out, you know, the race is coming up, and he's like, yeah, let's do this, I'm gonna win! Like, yeah. he just completely shifts gears, right? He, so- he gets into, I'm gonna show them mode. No, fuck them. I'm and, gonna win. I'm and, gonna win. He's he's Wario all of a sudden. I'm gonna win at a race. And I'm gonna kill that stupid the plumber. <laughs> but he but he um and even like it, later on when we see him lose a race, he takes it as a it, he's very upset. Oh yeah. And but you kind of like you get the idea watching this movie. You're not just like oh why why just just some mopey guy who lost a race. Like no, he, he clearly connects a lot to this. Yeah, absolutely. And and you see him really in the stands when he's like reliving the race in his head. As the uh, we have that great kind of combination of the sound of the the like janitor walking along and slamming the the seat shut just in rhythm and a staccato rhythm and and he's like reliving the race in his head it's such a great scene yeah he's just like everything's just shutting down for yeah. him yeah. yeah absolutely we've all been there <laughs> no i win all the time all i do is win 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 no matter what you like donald trump in that way you're always winning bigly and uh, i guess charlie sheen remember him no I wonder how he's doing. He's managed to stay out of the public eye lately. I wonder if he's, that means he's sober now. Or dead. I mean, it's very possible. Do you want to talk about Ian Holm in this movie? Yeah, Ian Holm. So he was an alien. What? Sorry, aliens. He was an alien. No, he was an alien. He was an alien. He was oh, in the first alien. I thought you meant he was an alien in this movie. No, no, he was in an alien. He had One sex of the with alien. the alien. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> You're out. That's what I heard. That's what You're I heard. Out. I heard after after the set shut down and it was dark. I mean, they just left the costume on set. You know, I'm really disappointed we never got a Bob Hoskins Ian Holm buddy pick. Oh man, wouldn't that have been great? Those two guys together, two little short guys running around. Couple bulldogs. Yeah. Oh man, if couple, they're just beating dudes up. Couple oh. of British bulldogs. Wait, wait, wait. So what if we got some a Bob Hoskins and an Ian Holm impersonator? They must exist. And uh, we got them to do, like, a, a CG movie as those two guys. Bob Holmeskin? Yeah, a guy doing Bob Hoskins doing, like, Eddie Valiant's accent, and then Ian Holm, just being Ian Holm with the high voice like this. Yeah, with Elijah Wood beside him. Oh, I'm a hobbit. You're not a hobbit, Ian. That's You're not I'm... a hobbit, Ian! <laughs> okay. Like, he wasn't British, Eddie Valiant. You're not a hobbit, Ian. But Ian Holm in this movie... Well, he's a very unassuming man. Yes. He's a uh, He's, he's being aged up in this movie a bit. You can see they got the old age makeup on him. I did notice that because I looked at it, I'm like, 1981, Ian yeah. Holm was not as old as these no. so <laughs> they're saying here. But 
he plays his coach. He plays Abraham's coach. And he doesn't do... Even he kind of doesn't do, like, the typical performance you might expect out of, like, a coach. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's not, like, that gruff guy who's, like, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. I mean, he kind of is, but, like... Well, we see that in the movie. That's the American coach. Yeah. We only see him pretty briefly, but that's basically what he is. Yeah, he's just push, push, push. He's more of just, like, a guy who is, like, good at what he does and he, he knows good advice. He, he knows, knows the, the advice, yeah. yeah. You're not going to see him run, but he knows what to do. He knows how to make, uh, make Harold, like, like, kick his knees really high. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and like, I don't know. I really, like, feel for that character. We don't know, like, a lot about him. But mm. when Abraham's, I mean, spoiler alert, when Abraham's ends up winning a medal, yeah. he has a very, like, realistic emotional reaction. What I love about that scene, so uh, part of it is, is that this guy has been banned from the Olympics because I didn't, he's a I, professional, I think. I, I think there was some indication oh, that he wasn't allowed to be on the property. But see, do you think professional, they keep saying professional. Yeah. I think that's a euphemism for him being uh, half Italian, half Arab. Possibly. I, I was thinking more that he generally would do it for money. I just, I don't know, man. Because like, uh, there's other, I mean, that scene we played earlier, they mentioned that they don't want him having that coach. And they mention he's half Italian. And, oh, and, and you know, when Abraham says, no, no, he's not, he's also half Arab. He's, like, sticking it to them. Yeah. But, like, they clearly don't like that. Yeah, and obviously, yes. G- given the rest of the passive racism in the movie, that must figure into it as well. Mm. But I also think that, that there's some issue with him even being on the grounds. Because he stays in the hotel room. He dresses up. I but thought we- he does that. I thought he stays in the hotel room during the race because he doesn't want to distract him. That, yeah, because yeah, he does. Remember, he, he mentions that, that thing when he's coaching him. Yeah. He says, "Gives him that note." In this race here, this man turned his head at the last second, and that one turn cost him the yeah. entire race. Makes sense. But then that leads us to this wonderful scene, which is just such a just like really well orchestrated, where we just see him looking out the window, and he's hearing the cheers of the crowd, and we see the British flag come up over the horizon on the flagpole, and we start hearing "God Save the Queen" playing, and it just. That's the moment he knows. And it's mm-hmm. so, you can see it in his face. It's wonderful. And he sits down and he punches a hole through his hat. Yeah, exactly. In like, like you do. In, in celebration. Which is proof to me that the quality of straw boaters in those days was severely lacking. Straw boners? <laughs> those are the arguments that Ben Shapiro makes. <laughs> say you were to get someone's vagina wet. Just say. Just, just, just assume. But yeah, so um, I mean, Ian Holm again, great. Yes, always. Uh, ben Cross, great. Yeah. They have their story, and we go to the other side of the coin. Yes. We have Ian Charlson, who plays Eric Little, and he is a man. He is a very Christian man. Very Christian. I mean, his parents were missionaries. That uh, he was birthed in China while they were on mission, uh, but he is a Scotsman through and through, and uh, he's very pious. Mm-hmm. And that comes into play later in the movie when he refuses to run the 100 meter uh, on uh, Sunday because it is on the Sabbath. And he's such a pious Christian that he will not do that sort of thing on the Sabbath. Let's listen to that scene. Let's listen to the scene um, where he basically stands by his convictions and says, you know, I've, I've done the running up to this point. I've made my family upset because the family is not thrilled with him doing this. But he says, like, you know, this brings me closer to God. And, you know... This I know. brings me closer to God. Listen, you and I, I can state this for a fact. We're not religious people. No, that is a fact. But I can appreciate, too, a movie in which a character has strong convictions. Genuine religious convictions, yes. I have no problem with people being religious. None at all. And this character has very strong convictions, and he sticks to them. And, uh, let, yeah, let's listen to the scene where he is talking about why he will not run on the Sabbath. 
Lord Birkenhead has advised us as to your attitude towards your participation in the 100 meters heats, little, or would your non-participation be more accurate? It would, sir, yes. We were also consulted as to the correct manner in which to approach the French. Something we just can't allow to happen. Going cap in hand to the frogs of all people, simply out of the question. Simple matter of national dignity, little. Being a patriot, I'm sure you understand. Well, I must say, sir, I felt it was an impractical suggestion from the start. Well, why didn't you damn well say so, man? As an athlete, you value economy of effort. I wanted to run. And I was desperate enough to try anything. Well, all that being understood, we decided to invite you in for a little chat to see if there's any way that we can help resolve the situation. There's only one way to resolve the situation. That's for this man to change his mind and run. Don't state the obvious, Cadogan. We have to explore ways in which we can help this young man to reach that decision. I'm afraid there are no ways, sir. I won't run on the Sabbath, and that's final. I intended to confirm this with Lord Birkenhead tonight, even before you called me up in front of this inquisition of yours. Don't be impertinent, little. The impertinence lies, sir, with those who seek to influence a man to deny his beliefs. On the contrary, little. We're appealing to your beliefs, in your country, in your king, your loyalty to them. Yeah, yeah. In my day, it was king first, God after. Yes, and the war to end wars bitterly proved your point. God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say that the Sabbath is his. And I, for one, intend to keep it that way. So there you go. Um, he's very, 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 very true to his convictions, and he doesn't want to run on the Sabbath. And again, up until that point, we see Eric Little embracing this idea of running, bringing him closer to God. He actually tells his sister in one scene, like, I need you to kind of run the mission until I'm done all this stuff, because I, I want to... I want to do it for Jesus, or whatever he says. Yeah. And, but but this is a moment where they, he finds out that at the last second that he's going to have a race on Sunday, or, or it's like a Saturday or Sunday, and he's like, no, I can't. I absolutely can't. So yeah, so that's Eric's, that's Eric's side. That's his story that's going on. Yeah. So he's basically trying to juggle both things. So it's interesting that like he's able to kind of embrace his religion mm. and juggle, you know, both ideals of like being runner and while at the same time Abraham's on the other side of the coin is kind of have to have having to fight for him being a Jew, like to, a Jewish person. He, he runs in spite of his religion as opposed to it being a benefit to him. And of course, that's because right. culturally, you can in 1924 England being a Christian is a, a, you know a, a thing that is to be aspired to. And the fact that he refuses to run on the Sabbath could have gone one way. They could have been very mean to him and, and like cast him as some sort of traitor to his country by not running in the race. But instead, they, they spun it as a PR thing. Like he, It's like, oh, so he's such a stringent and commoted, committed Christian that he's not willing to run on the Sabbath. And he is, he is a man who is committed to his ideals. And that's, that's the British person through and through. That's what it means to be an Englishman. Well, and I mean, they do base this on truth in the sense that this was a big news story at yeah, the time. Yeah, no, these, these guys are both real guys. We're real guys. Like, I mean, the fact, well, yes, yeah, yeah, they're both real guys. But I mean, the fact that he didn't want to run on the Sabbath, mm, like, mm. that was apparently, like, a huge story at yeah. the time. 
Um, there's a big whole kerfuffle around that, and you see a little like newspaper headlines. And it's stuff. it's like ultimately it becomes a feel good story for the era because it's like oh this guy he braced his Christianity, he's living a good life, and he did this, and he's not going to run on the Sabbath because he is so committed to Jesus. I want to ask you something though. Uh, no, I'm not interested in your religion. Will you just read the pamphlet? Okay. Thank you. Now, I want to ask you, in terms of the stories, and I know we can both say unequivocally, without doubt, that both Ben Cross and uh, Ian Charlson are both great oh, yeah. in these roles. But what is there one story, I, I'm going to ask you first, and I'll tell you if I'm feeling the same way, but is one of the two stories, which one do you feel like most connected to? Oh, what? the Harold story, absolutely, because he's going through real shit. Like, yeah. He's going through like some real adversity. Uh, uh, Little's adversity isn't quite the same. Like, he obviously, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like, it's the privilege of it, really. It's the privilege of him being a Christian and a native. And, well, not a native. I guess he's born in China. But, like, of, of that stock, he culturally fits into it and he can do what he wants to do and not have to worry about the extraneous pushback that a guy who's Jewish then has to deal with just simply for the fact that he's Jewish. It feels like another way of equating it to, like, first world problems. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I I oh. do feel like he has issues. I do feel like he he is facing some pushback, and yeah. people don't think he's a real Christian yeah. because of what he's doing. Yeah, but in comparison to someone who almost can't even embrace his own faith, mm. but with without fear of being persecuted for just doing that, I feel like that's a whole different beast. Yes. By the way, let's lay this on the table while I'm thinking about it. Okay. Uh, j- Overall, the people in this movie, one has to remember, these are all upper-class twats, or twits, however you want to say it. These are people that I have a hard time feeling any sympathy for out of the gate because they're all rich assholes that spend their fucking time running around like fools. Well, especially Lord, especially Lord Andrew. Yeah, let's just say. But but because of the the way this movie's shot, we can kind of accept it for what it is and enjoy the story. But ultimately, it's like this is just a bunch of fucking rich guys jerking themselves off, Brendan. I mean, that's my favorite. Uh, that's my favorite uh, category on Pornhub. So. Absolutely. Rich guys jerking themselves off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, it's Jeff Bezos, and he's hanging out with Bill Gates. Oh, my goodness. Oh, shit, they're using 50s tonight. <laughs> $50,000 bills, I mean. Yes, with Sam and P. Chase on them. Who? Look him up. He's a real guy. <laughs> Sam and P. Chase, babe. babe. <laughs> oh, Jason, you are the Dennis Miller of us. <laughs> That's my new title. I'm putting it on my business card. Jason, the Dennis Miller of us. <laughs> You're the Dennis Miller of the U.S.? I thought that was Dennis Miller. No, it's the Dennis Miller of us, me and my friend Brendan. We should put that on your business card. It wouldn't fit. Yeah. Plus, you want the nice eggshell ones from American Psycho. That's right. You don't want you don't want a shitty one. because you don't, Or you don't want a one that's too good, though, because you don't want to get uh, strangled by Christian Bale in the bathroom. I don't want to be judged, but I don't want to be a target. Yeah. You want to be strangled by Christian Bale in the bathroom who then pretends that he was lovingly feeling your neck. Yes. Yes. Ever since I saw that movie. Um, what was I going to say? Okay. So above all, above all else, we talked about how this is a movie about two, about conviction. We mm. talked about how it's about persecution. Um, it's also, I mean, it's also a sports movie. Yes. Kind of. Well, I mean, uh, yes. And if, if you consider running a sport, and I, I guess I oh, would. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. Take that, Usain Bolt. World's <laughs> fastest man. Take that, uh, Oscar Pistorius. Yeah. Oh, wait, oh, well, it's fine. Yeah, he should take it. <laughs> 
But my question, okay, so it's a sports movie, you could argue, because, I mean, well, it's competitive running. It's, you know, competing against other people. It's a sports movie. That's kind of the main thrust of it. I mean, technically, there's, like, the quote-unquote big game. But what I do like about this, like, sort of sports movie is that it's not really hinging on that. No. Like, they could lose. They could win. It really wouldn't make much of a difference. It just turns out that history worked out better than a screenplay. (laughs) I mean, they clearly picked people that won. Yeah, exactly. Um, There are some accuracy issues. I'll tell you one right out of the gate, Brendan. You want to know? Yeah. Uh, There's a Canadian competitor in one one, uh, competition, and you see him coming up the... the track and on his uh, on his uh, stomach is a Canadian flag a maple leaf flag which as you and I both know was not made the official Canadian flag until 1967 uh, that flag was designed it was a compromised flag so it didn't exist in any form in the 1920s what the what that competitor should have been wearing was a red ensign with the uh, Union Jack in the upper canton and then a red field and then the coat of arms are uh, are we uh are we all going to the same party? <laughs> uh, what was that from? A heritage moment. Oh, oh, specifically, yes. Right, Part right, of our right. heritage. Because I was thinking of the blue is not an official Canadian. Oh, color. that's the one. Yeah, yeah. That's what he same. says at the end. He says, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Prime Minister and Mr. Diefenbaker, are we, uh, are we all going to the, the same, same party? party? <laughs> and that was the MP that came up with the flag. Yeah. There you go. The Tories want this. <laughs> it's not very nice, but blue is not an official Canadian, Canadian color. color. <laughs> Why is he William Shatner now? <laughs> That'd be great. I mean, I he's Canadian. I would love to see William Shatner in a heritage ad. He's Canadian. I'm they Pier- should do a heritage ad about Star Trek. I mean, Pierce Brosnan was technically in a heritage ad. So was Dan Aykroyd. I suppose in that in the, the Clip era. Of the yeah. From the era, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I mentioned there. They does the movie does take some liberties with the Olympics here. Mm. So... Um, Besides what you mentioned as well. So Little actually wasn't told about this Sabbath thing at the last minute like he is in the movie. Mm. He was actually well aware of this uh, several months in advance. Um, and he did face immense pressure to run on that day. And he was contemplating it for a long time leading up to it. Um, and eventually he said, you know, no. But again, it wasn't like as dramatic as it is in the movie. Which, I, you know, it's something like that I can take. Yeah. Like, you know, you shorten the timeline, whatever. Same thing happened. Same result. Nobody gets hurt. That's fine. He did actually run in one of the races with Abrahams because they do one of the main things in this movie is that he beats Abraham and Abrahams in a race yes. early in the movie, and the whole thing is like Abrahams wants to beat him, yeah, and they never actually get to do that. No, they never run in a race together after that. Yeah, which is interesting that the I mean I know it's history, but it's yeah. interesting that the movie takes that route though of like you never really get the payoff to that. Yeah, and that made it feel a lot more realistic. Well, that's again that's harder to do with a historical film. I mean, you could do it, and people have done shit like that, but yes, it wouldn't ring true to what actually happened. But here's the thing. They did race together. Oh, did they? Yeah. That's what I thought. At the Olympics? Yeah. That's what I think is crazy about this movie is that they they didn't didn't include that. So maybe they thought that it wasn't, that wasn't the point. Well, I mean, here's the thing. He, Eric Little ran in the 200 meter race and finished third behind Paddock and Schultz. So Schultz was the American runner. Well, Paddock was too, wasn't he? Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't, dramatically, that's not that interesting. yeah. (laughs) <laughs> right? Um, so that's the only time they actually competed in the same race. Uh, there, actually, their moment earlier where you see Little beat Abrahams in that race, that was totally made up. That was never it? happened. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, but he did have an amazing record that did kind of push Abrahams to train harder, get that you know trainer played by Ian Holm. Guys, be accurate or don't. Come on. 
<laughs> um, there's a big dramatic moment later on in the in the movie where, and I, this is one that I questioned just as watching. Yeah. But where Schultz gives a little a little Bible quotation message. Yes. Um, it says in the old book, "He that honors me, I will honor." Good luck. In reality, that note was actually from members of the British team. Ah. So it's weird yeah. that this movie attributes that to the American. Giving that show of unity between these uh, similarly white Christian men. They learn something from the courtroom scene in a matter of life and death. Oh, by the way, just want to mention real quick that the English or the American team does have a black gentleman uh, on the team. I wrote down the amount of times I saw a black face because I, once. No, I've got I've got several. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll I'll take a look here in a second, but because this is a very white film. Yeah, no, absolutely, totally, and and understandably so. But yeah, it was nice to see a person of color in there somewhere. I guess, um, it may, and it makes sense that the American team would be the one with that. So the reason it okay so for dramatic purposes the screenwriter Colin Welland who will actually mention who he is in a second but he actually asked Schultz the real guy Schultz if he's like can I depict it that you handed him the note and he he basically said yeah great as long as it makes me look good <laughs> Colin Welland the writer of this movie we've we've talked about a movie that he was in as an actor oh really we talked about the movie Kess oh really he was the kindly teacher. Oh, that he actually goes to his house and meets the falcon and everything. Oh, cool. Yeah, or a hawk, I guess. Yeah. Also, a fun connection. I, there's a character credited as the Reverend Little. I don't know if that's his father or... Uh, I think probably. But that dude was the academic that is making the documentary in Monty Python and the Holy Grail that gets murdered by uh, Arthur as he rides by and cuts his throat open. This movie, okay, I'll tell you a little bit about how this movie comes together because there's a producer named David Putnam, and he was looking for a story in the mold of a movie he produced called A Man for All Seasons, which is also on this list, which we'll talk about someday. Uh, basically regarding someone following their conscience, and he said sports is like the easiest way to do that. Sport, uh, a sports framework is a good way to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also, uh, David Putnam was also super sick. He had like a house flu. So he was staying in this house, in L.A., and he came upon Eric Little's story um, when he found a book on basically on the 1924 Olympics. So the screenwriter, Colin Welland, he contacts him to write the script. Uh, he was commissioned. He did an enormous amount of research. Uh, Colin Welland took out advertisements in London newspapers seeking any memories of the 1924 Olympics. Because you got to remember, yeah. this is 1981 looking for people that were alive in 1924, yeah, so, almost 60 years ago. So if you figure someone was like 20 and went to those Olympics, that means that by that point they'd be 80. Been, yeah, nearly 80. So he's, he went to the National Film Archives for pictures and footage. Uh, he interviewed everyone he could find that was still alive. Um, and actually, he just missed interviewing... Abraham's because he died in January of 1978 yeah. and they were starting to film it. And, and But he did attend the funeral service in February, mm-hmm. which is kind of the inspiration for the opening scene where we started Abraham's funeral service. Mm-hmm. Another actually just accuracy note while we're there, he mentions Montague is in the crowd. Montague died in 1948. So he wouldn't have been at that funeral. Maybe, maybe they hauled his corpse to the fucking church. They did not weekend at Montague him. <laughs> That's the sequel I want to see. Um, but Aubrey Montague's son saw a Colin Wellens newspaper ad, which basically was like, you know, we're looking for, we're looking for information, anything you guys get memories, whatever. So he basically sent him a bunch of copies of the letters that his dad sent home. Wow. And so in the, again, we're talking about, um, trying to capture as much accuracy as possible in the opening scene after the big run, when we hear Aubrey Montague 
narrating his letter. Yeah. It's a real letter he sent home. It's the real deal. Yeah. Uh, And, and, I mean, it says that they changed... Uh, darling mummy to dear mom. That was the difference. So. <laughs> a, a good good choice. It, it would come off a little infantile. Yeah. Uh, the original script also featured, like I mentioned, Doug Lowe. He said, no, I don't want to be a part of this. Um, they said, okay, well, we don't have to listen to you, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, because they're all classy gentlemen. Ian Charleston actually wrote Eric Little's speech. So Ian Charlson went into like a bunch of research for this part because he was not a religious man. So he did a lot of like research on the Bible, passages that are important to people. And he did a bunch of research and he did so so that when he was given the script of what to say to all these like common men when he's doing the sermon. Yeah. He was like, eh, he wouldn't say that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about this. This feels a little saccharine. Like this feels a little, you know, over the top. And so he kind of wrote his own version of it. You know, with the blessing of, you know, the writer and the producer. Because, I mean, Ian Charleston, it's not like, you know, Roger Moore walked onto the set. He's like, this is what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, go ahead. Give it, he gave him a go ahead. And uh, and he did it. And I think the scene is, you know, it's a good speech. Um, basically, they, yeah, basically they said, just write anything that makes you inspired. Like anything in the Bible that you found that personally inspires yeah. you, write that down. And it, and it does feel genuine that way. The idea, too, of casting this movie was to cast a lot of young unknowns with some heavyweights. So that's why we have people like John Gilgood. So mm-hmm. we have a director like Lindsay Anderson in the movie. Yeah. Um, uh, Give or, it some real street cred. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ben Cross, actually. Uh, we talked about him a little bit. You know how he was discovered? Was He was in a, a musical, one of your favorites, mm. Chicago, playing Ooh. Billy Flynn on Broadway. Is that the John C. Riley role? I, I believe that's, is the, I think that's the Richard Gere role. It's been a long time. <laughs> um, 20th Century Fox put up, or I guess, what is it now? 20th Century Studios? Whatever they are. Who cares? They put up half of the budget, but they said, I want, we want to have some names, like some, at least some somewhat names. So they said there's this guy named Brad Davis who had just been in Midnight Express. They had him play one of the Americans. And they had a guy named Dennis Christopher who was in a movie called Breaking Away, and he played the other American runner. Which I also confused this movie for, so it makes sense. Uh... I'll have to watch Breaking Away sometime. I hear it's very good. Yeah, I've never seen it. They did a stage play of this movie. Oh, yeah, I did see a picture of that on Wikipedia. Uh, they did it during the uh, during the year the Olympics were in London. 2012. Yep. And the uh, the director of this movie, Hugh Hudson, co-produced, co-produced the play. Hmm. And he said, issues of faith, of refusal to compromise, standing up for one's beliefs... Achieving something for the sake of it with passion and not just for fame or financial gain are even more vital today. I hope everybody that was still alive got to see that. Jason. Brendan. Give us some bits and bobs. Da-da-da-da-da-da. So at the beginning when he says it's just the two of us left for a moment, I thought, oh, is this going to be like the fighting hellfish? It's like a tauntaun? Like they're going to have to, there's like a bunch of hidden gold and then they're going to have to go fight over it? She also mentioned uh, this movie fits uh, criteria of a lot of movies we've done we've done on this list is that the framing device is this is a story about what happened in the past. Yeah, yeah, frame of the funeral. I, I immediately thought of Lawrence of Arabia, but yeah, other movies have done that sort of thing. I mean, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, yeah. English Patient. Yeah, kind of. You start at the end and then see what happened. Um, the very first person we see when we see them on the beach running and we hear the strains of that song has a very posh jaw. Just so British. He just it's like it's like Britain's poster boy as he runs across the screen. Uh oh 
fuck, this made me laugh. Not laugh, but just made me go, wow, Dodie Fayed produced this movie. Do you know who Dodie Fayed was? Dodie Fayed was the guy that was having an affair, well, not an affair, but was like going out and, and uh, hanging around with Princess Diana the night that the both of them were killed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just seeing his name, I was like, what? Oh, um, as a bit and Bob, because it doesn't really fit in anywhere else, yeah. I would like to play a quick clip. Sure. Um, this is a scene uh, when they're in the school, and one of the headmasters is talking about all the names on the wall. Yes, the war lists. Yeah, and I, I just really like how he describes this. Name after name, which I cannot read, and which we, who are older than you, cannot hear without emotion. Names which will be only names to you, the new college, but which to us summon up face after face, full of honesty and goodness, zeal and vigor, and intellectual promise. The flower of a generation, the glory of England, and they died for England, and all that England stands for. And now, by tragic necessity, their dreams have become yours. Let me exhort you. Examine yourselves. Let each of you discover where your true chance of greatness lies. For their sakes, for the sake of your college and your country, seize this chance, rejoice in it, and let no power or persuasion deter you in your task. So I love that speech because it, he he's basically like, you know, you're going to see this thing with all these names on this, this is the war list, all the people that died in World War One. Right. Mm. And he says, you may just see all these names. But we we people who've been here for like a long ass time, we see these names and we just it conjures up images because we know all these people. Mm. So it's different perspectives. Yeah. Right. It's like it, it's it's interesting because the movie is kind of all about perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a very some very wrong-headed perspectives, but I think it's an interesting way to start the movie is by saying like you you see this and we see this. So back to my bits and bobs because since you so rudely interrupted me, I'm just con- I I've I got some too. I want to throw them in. Uh, yeah, this, so that song I wrote was very cliche at this point in history, which it is. And there's more synth than I remember. Not that I remember this movie because I'd never seen it, but then the I guess more synth than I thought that it may have might have been in this thing. Wow. Did you like the college job fair? Yeah, that was neat. Uh, the way the camera was like swinging yeah, back and forth. Yeah, it was handheld, and it was like yeah, going around them and stuff. That I think was it's neat. the only scene where they do that. Again, that reminds me of the, of the Simpsons when they go and they have to join the clubs, and and the only thing left is tethered swimming. <laughs> T.S. Uh, I wrote fuck all these twits. I wrote yeah, good use of the handheld. Uh, we see a Scottish Conan O'Brien at one point, a redheaded fellow who looks very much in my mind like a cross between Conan O'Brien and uh, that that guy you didn't like very much. From Titus. Oh, Zach Ward? Yeah, that guy. Uh, let's see. The synth was a bit out of place. I, I mean, thought the synth that's was... not a professional thing. That's just a personal that's thing. Just a fact. That's just a fact. <laughs> I, I initially thought the synth was a bit out of place, but at the same time, it does kind of make this movie unique because this is the sort of soundtrack you associate with another Vangelis film like Blade Runner, more so than a um, uh, historical drama. Six. Six. Yeah. Six black guys. That's what I wrote down. Six. I noticed six black faces. Nice. Uh, and again, I no, one. no, no speaking lines. parts, no, no lines. lines. No. You barely even see some of their faces, and most of them are like assistants. Yeah. So there's one athlete on the team. Yeah. 
Uh, let's see. Got to make it all about Jesus, of course. It's classic stuff to do. Uh, only know the uh, forever remain an Englishman song from The Simpsons, of course, because Sideshow Bob sings it. I've never known that you um, that they they cut the dirt with a little like spade before they run. Yeah, that was a neat thing. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize that. I feel like nowadays they don't do that because they don't tend to run on dirt, and they also will have like those launching pads that they can kind of. Is that run what off it is? Of. Is that for launching? Yeah, it's like they put their feet on them, and okay. so then they have a kind of a, a solid surface to launch from. Uh, I like that the dude has a Liddell has a pocket full of pens because mm-hmm. when the girl asks for a, a, an autograph, he's like, "Choose a pen." <laughs> that's fun. That's fun for the kids. Uh, he's training to get that extra di- distance, but Liddell, we, we see Liddell training, and he's training. It was almost like a uh, like Rocky training in Rocky Four, where you see like Drago, Drago is that his name? Yeah, Ivan Drago. Yeah, Drago's fucking like training with like chemicals and machines and computers and stuff, and Rocky's running through like fighting a tire weirdly enough that's also running through the highlands weirdly enough that's also uh ivan drago's drag name oh drago yeah old drago i wondered if if, if they would have like a religious rivalry in this movie since one was a christian one was a jew and they didn't go there back then that was like the real point of contention i guess uh it's like in how in the movie The Devil's Brigade, we learn that Canadians and Americans can actually get along. I also thought I might hate Ian Charleston's character at first yeah. just because of who he kind of was. And again, nothing against Christians, but just yeah. the fact that he was so Super Christian. pious, yeah. I, I, but no. No. He like comes it, across as a, as a guy. And, and based on what little I know of his later life, like apparently near the end of his life when he was in a Chinese internment camp, uh, people that were with him talked about how he was like the nicest guy in the world that never said a bad word about anybody. Like everybody else was struggling to, to deal with that fact that they were in this, uh, I guess, Japanese internment. It was a, run by the Japanese, but... Um, but he was the guy that just stayed positive and helped everybody and, and helped with the kids. And So you mean he's an actual Christian, not like the one that's running a country right now? Yo, I mean, shit. He that- could probably hold a Bible up the right way. <laughs> well, let's see here. But Bill Clinton did it too, Jason! Yeah, well, I didn't... Yeah, Bill Clinton was also a fucking scumbag, so what do you got? Oh, so you're a Republican now? I guess so. <gasps> you Trump 2020! You you heard it here first, folks. Also, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm going to go get my truck. Uh, All right. Uh, let's see here. There goes your Semite, Hugh. A different god, a different mountaintop. No, same god, a different mountaintop, I think, is what he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a weird thing to say. As soon as I heard, but, there goes your Semite, I'm like, oh, what's yeah, on their yeah, mind? Exactly. They, they, they think of him again as his identity rather than him as a person. He doesn't mm. have the privilege that the English guy does. Uh, more songs on the boat, of course, because as I keep saying, in the old days, they didn't have anything else to do. As if video games and fucking whatever we do, and watching movies nowadays is like the pinnacle of entertainment. But it always is funny to me that like people sing a lot because they had nothing else to do. Dude. It's the same with doing that fucking run around the courtyard. They do that um, uh, where they, they have to get around the courtyard before the bell stops tolling. Like that's a real thing they do at that place at St. Trinity's or whatever it is called. Yeah, the bells of St. Yeah. Trinity's. But also, yes, exactly. And uh, you, if you look closely in the background, you see Alistair Simmons drag. <laughs> but that was the sort of thing they do because they didn't have anything else to do, right? Uh, you know what? Shit was boring back in the old days. Oh, yeah. I thought it was cool seeing that recreation of the opening ceremonies, what they might have been like at the France Olympics, at the Paris Olympics, because, yeah, they would have been like that because it wasn't, right. even though it was an international event, it wasn't to the level uh, that it is now, obviously. Although I was impressed to see a bunch of ads uh, like they had a lot of ads around there and I'm like okay well they, they knew what was coming you see like a Lipton tea ad from yeah. the garden to the bag in the background 
uh, this it's like was, watching it's like watching a goddamn Adam Sandler that's movie. That's right. Uh, spinning newspapers. I don't know if this movie invented spinning newspapers, but they sure used them. I don't think it did. Uh, I think that goes way back. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I've seen it like way back in like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> uh, Harold having that meeting while he's getting a massage, that was very mafia. Like that was very like Godfather. Like they're going to come in and shoot him. Let's listen to that scene. Abraham's getting a massage while he kind of confides in uh, Aubrey. Yes. And I think it's I think it's another really good scene. So what, since you mentioned it, Jason, let's, let's hear it. Do you remember when we first bumped into each other, old man? We shared a taxi, remember? You made me feel an age-old, burdened, sour, even superior. (laughs) That was the miscalculation of my life. You, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret. Contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. Sam and I, we labored, rowed and bullied for this. Day in, day out. You've seen us. Chuckled over us, I'll be bound. Out in all weathers. Madmen. And for what? I was beaten out of sight in the 200. Then that paddock tricked me in the semi. Now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor. Four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And that is a powerful scene because that's Abraham's being like, this is it. This is it for me. I got to make it or break it. At this point, if I don't win, what am I? What's my, what's the purpose? And again, in any other movie, you'd be like, oh, come on, get over it. You mope. But you see what he goes through and why he wants to overcompensate for this shit. Next bit. Yep. So at one point we see um, Harold fall while he's running, right? Yeah. What I'm concerned about is you notice those lane dividers they have uh, between the lanes. You notice you don't see those anymore? Mm-hmm. Those seem real fucking dangerous to me. If you fall and impale yourself on one of those lane dividers, that would not be a good scene. Does he not get tripped, too? I think he gets tripped, doesn't he? Does he? Like, intentionally tripped? I think so. I thought I saw that, and then I wa- I waited for it to come back, and I never Yeah, because you would expect that if he got intentionally tripped, it would become, like, a rivalry, or there'd be some Trip- confrontation. Tripgate. Tripgate. It was the uh, first, uh, the first, uh, what's her face? Tanya Harding. Exactly. I said, I already said the Canadian dude had the wrong flag, which was the same problem in the movie The Longest Day. I guess in the last thing I'll say, my last bit, was that the finale was not quite as dramatic as I expected. I expected they really would have hammered down and used that theme and really gone for the slow motion, like really extended it. But it was there, but it wasn't to that overextending it point. They only used the theme at the beginning, I think. Yeah, and they didn't, yeah, they should have. I, I was assuming they were going to bring it back at the end for, like, the final race, but no, they didn't. And, well, I think, and I think that, again, well, speaks to... Well, and we to, hear it at the end when we see that opening scene again. Well, yeah. Yeah. But I think, again, that speaks to um, 
the fact that the the like I said, the big game or whatever yeah. is not that important of a part in the movie. It's all about it was it was more resolution than like a massive payoff. More about the characters than yeah. anything else. Yeah. One more thing I'll say is just it's interesting how um, uh, Harold reacts after he wins. Mm. Oh, he's not yeah. really interested in talking to anybody and they kind of talk about that fact that like yeah he's he's won so kind of leave him alone and and I get that because at that point that's like he has transitioned in his life because he spent the last like four eight whatever however many years of his life training for that moment to go to the Olympics and not only did he go he wins a gold medal so at that point He's done the thing he set out to do. And then what do you do from there? And then what do you do from there? Exactly. Like, what's what's left? Like, he knows he has uh, uh, well, Sybil back home. I mean... And he's been neglecting her. And he mentions... Yeah. And I mean, I don't think they treat her quite fairly. But anyway, yeah. um, I feel like... Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like they're, well, she's told to, basically the, the put up with it. The, the character apparently is not the actual... Like, the, the wife's name was Sybil, but she had a different last yeah. name. And they may have mistaken who she was but they basically tell like the, ian home basically tells her like just just put up with it mm, mm. and then hope he wins because yep. he's going to be a bastard if he doesn't yeah but but um but i mean that's just of the time yeah but uh, what was i going to say the thing with him uh changing yes yeah. it just reminds me because earlier he talked about how it was like an addiction yeah and that is totally what happens with an addict you reach a certain high you're like where do i go from here yeah, try something new chasing that dragon where do what i go from here do? once you've won a gold medal at the olympics where do you go from there like, weed's boring let's try mushrooms mushrooms <laughs> is boring how about acid hey let's do cocaine i don't know i don't know the natural progression jason the, your progression was good until you got to the acid to cocaine okay part. well I, whatever that's a, that's a very different whatever i don't do drugs good uh, not Congratulations. all you should be commended with a medal most drugs <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's I, I, I get that too. That's yeah. interesting because yeah, it, once it once you hit the top of the mountain, and one wonders if that's sort of the the watershed moment in his life where he kind of has to grow up, as it were, because he talks about it that he's twenty four, and now that he's done this, it's like now he can go settle down with his wife and have well, a family. Ian Holmes says that to him, yeah. but did you notice in that scene after he's won, and Ian Holmes is like, "Good, now you've done it. You go home, you take care of your wife, you raise a family, you have fun." He, you go home and you fuck the prom queen. But he, re, the way he reacts to it, is not like he's just overjoyed to be yeah. done with it. He just kind of gives him a look like, yeah, 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 sure, sure. You get the idea watching that he's not done. He's not ready. He wasn't ready to to achieve what is essentially the top level yeah. of that. Yeah, it's like it's like you can't. The Joker, Batman will never kill the Joker. Yeah. Because then, what does he have to live for? But also, Batman's ethics prevent him from killing people generally, unless it serves a story purpose. Well, okay, let me put it this way: then Joker will never actually kill Batman because then he has no one to go That's off. That's true. That's true. They it's need just, each other. They do. If They're the, not so different. You and I. <laughs> if the Lego Batman movie taught me one thing, Jason, it's that the Joker and the, and Batman need each other. K N E A D. All right, let's talk about the awards. This movie, yes, you weren't joking when you said Oscar Beatty. This movie yeah. goes to the Oscars. And rightfully so. And I will say that the, the first awards that it is nominated for is nominated for three awards that it does not win. Best soundtrack. Uh, no, it is nominated. These are the ones it doesn't win. It is nominated for Best Editing, which was won that year by Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, well, that's a good movie to lose to. That's it a is. solid movie. <laughs> it's funny because we mentioned his brother earlier, but it's nominated for Best Director, which is won by Warren Beatty for Reds. <laughs> um, yeah, I've never seen Reds. Have you? No, it's one that I've always wanted to, yeah. but I never have. 
Uh, Ian Holm is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. For Alien. <laughs> no, for this movie. <laughs> but he loses to John Gilgood for Arthur, which I think is funny because he's yeah, in both movies. Crazy. Yeah. Asshole. And it's cool Fuck that he- you, John Gilgood, you dead actor. <laughs> I like that he won for a comedy. Yeah, that's cool. Um, the, the, move, the awards it wins. It wins, like you said, Best Original Score. Oh, it does win it. It wins Best Costume Design. Nice, yep. It wins Best Original Screenplay. Oh. And it wins the big one, Best Picture. Crazy. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? It's one of our Best Picture award winners, yeah. Jason. And, and on the scale of better than English patient or it's worse better, than English patient? <laughs> better than English patient. Hooray! I was worried. I will tell you this. <laughs> yes, that me opening, too. That opening two minutes, yeah. I was like, oh boy, we might be in for a long one. Here we go. <laughs> and I think I, I even messaged you and was like, just to let you know, this is a slow burn. Yeah. This is not a fast-paced movie, but not necessarily a bad thing. And but... it was at that point that I assumed it was a revenge picture, and I was sorely disappointed. But are you sorely disappointed that it also goes to the BAFTAs? No, I'm happy about that. It is nominated. These are the awards it doesn't win. It is nominated for Best Director. The winner that year is Louis Mao for Atlantic City. Best Screenplay. The winner that year is Gregory's Girl. Oh. Best Cinematography. The winner that year is Tess. Best Editing. The winner is Raging Bull. Uh, the classic British film. Best Original yeah. Music. The winner that year is The French Lieutenant's Woman. Uh, Best Production Design. The winner is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, well, Which is obviously. a good winner. Uh, best sound, the winner is the French Lieutenant's Women. Over Raiders? Women. Yeah. God damn it. And it wins. Best costume design, best supporting actor for Ian Holm, and best overall film. This movie should have won best sweaters. <laughs> I do like the constant love for Ian Holm, though. Yeah, no, absolutely. I he mean, deserves it. I do I do think Ben Cross and Ian Charlson were a little overlooked, oh. but if you got to give it to one Ian, it's not a bad choice. Absolutely. Uh, since its release, Jason, Chariots of Fire has received generally positive reviews from critics. Uh, this movie holds an 85%. I think it's actually lower than that now. I think it's like 82 or something on Rotten Tomatoes. Who's added negative reviews? <laughs> uh, where they the consensus on that website is decidedly slower and less limber than the Olympic runners at the center of its story, the film nevertheless manages to make effectively stirring use of its spiritual and patriotic themes. Mm. Uh, Kate Muir of the Times gave it five stars as in a time when drug tests and synthetic fibers have replaced gumption and moral fiber the tale of two runners competing against each other in the 1924 Olympics has a simple undiminished power from the opening scene of pale young men running, racing barefoot along the beach full of hope and elation backed by Evangelist's now famous anthem the film is utterly compelling damn damn this movie cost five and a half million dollars it made in the U.S. fifty-nine wow. million dollars. Just in the U.S. Just in the U.S. So over like 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 a twelve-fold return. Yeah, Gotta and that's that. fifty-nine million dollars nineteen eighty-one money. Yeah. I mean, granted, five and a half million nineteen eighty-one money, but still. Yeah. But it's still that's still twelve times, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, there's there's no way the marketing budget made them uh, lose money on that one. No. So this is a huge success. What I think is really interesting about this movie, kind of before we get to our final views here, is this movie is kind of lost to time. Yeah. The the sound, the, the, there's no denying the score. Everyone knows that song. Everyone's heard it in everything it's ever been made. Yeah. But no one, I I challenge you to find that many people that we know personally yeah. 
that know, that can tell you what Chariots yeah. of Fire is about. Yeah, you you would have to hit guys in their like early fifties that you know this is when they were in high school and and they remember this movie coming out. That's or ladies, because I mean you could talk about movies like I don't know like Taxi Drivers from like nineteen seventy four. I yeah. would say plenty more people know about Taxi Driver than well, something yeah. like Chariots of Fire. Yeah, but. It, it, it's it, it's a weird thing where like the the sound of it became almost too famous. Yeah, exactly. That it diminished it, it outstripped everything else. The movie in every way possible, just because it became so iconic and so repeated. Yeah. Um, so I mean, there's not much you can do about that, I suppose. But it's a yeah. I guess more people should remember this exists. So Jason, that brings us to this uh, last little bit. Then, Chariots of Fire. What'd you think? It's fine. Ultimately, it was fine. I, I enjoyed the look of it. I enjoyed the, the lens of it. Uh, the soundtrack grew on me as the movie moved on. Um, performances were good and everything. But at the end of the day, I mean, like, again, these are a bunch of upper class twits that I don't have a whole lot of sympathy or relation to. So I can't feel too into that aspect of it. They're not of my class, Brendan. Mm-hmm. But I do appreciate what it does. And it does it very well. So you can't really go wrong with this movie. I mean, it is a it's a solid Oscar picture if that's what you're looking for. This is what I wanted English Patient to be. Yeah, this is like it's not perfect. There, yeah. it's 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 good. It's beautiful, mm. um, and it's good. But quintessential like, Oscar bait, like like in the best possible way. I can't really say too that I was ever like really bored. Yeah, like there are no. parts that were slow, yeah. and there are parts where I was like, all right. <laughs> but it was pretty pretty interesting. Pretty the way, interesting whole way throughout, through, yeah. and there was enough. Yeah, there's enough stuff going on. Whereas English Patient, I wanted to end from mm. like mm. minute forty, maybe. Oh Jesus, for like minute five, fuck. <laughs> As soon as I knew that we weren't going to get the biplane accident for a long time, I'm so glad that we got that out of the way right in the beginning, so that we had us like that we kind of took ourselves to the top of the mountain on that one, and and nothing has felt quite as bad since. (laughs) We have a barometer right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will contend that with women in love. Yes, fine. Absolutely, I I, I disagree, but I can see your point. Um, But yeah, no, I think uh, now 19. It's 19 on this list. Seems like that might be a bit high, but that also probably is a question of its uh, relatively recentness when they made this movie, you know, or made this list rather. It was 1999, so it was only 18 years after the movie came out. Yeah. I do feel like in terms of impact, I mean, again, the sound, but like the movie well, itself. And it was a big impact because it was a big deal. Like, obviously, if it made $60 million yeah. in the U.S., it probably made a pretty good amount of money in Britain, I just, too. I just don't think it has a lot of staying power, no. honestly. But, I mean, yeah, I think... On the list, probably. Um, I don't think it should be 19. Yeah. I think that's very high. A little further down, maybe. Yeah. I think right around the 50s and 60s, I'd be yeah. maybe even lower, honestly. Yeah. I like it, a lo- I like it but it, it, 19 is crazy I'd to me. I'd say you're right, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it, yeah positive. Thumbs up. Thumbs up for sure. You can't, you, you know, it's worth watching. This brings an end to our set of 20 movies. Woo! We have reached 60 movies on this list, Jason. That's crazy. Right, so next week... 60 movies of the list, and then whatever else we've watched as well. So we've watched quite a few movies since we started this thing. probably watched 100, if not more. But we're going to... uh, Next week, we are going to do our ranking of the last 20 movies we've talked about. We're going to give out some awards. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have some beers. Tell some stories. It's going to be a good time. Play some banjo. I mean, if you want. I mean, I can't. I assumed you would. Well, no, Steve Martin will be here. Oh! 
provided he dies in six days. Well, let's hope he doesn't. If he does, really bad. I am going to sound like the biggest asshole, <laughs> and also I will sound like I, I, it will sound like I don't make any sense because we tape these weeks in advance. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I have to work on my Steve Martin impression just in case. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me. We're just two wild and crazy guys. You nailed it. <laughs> Your big American breasts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but then, so next week, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to rank the last 20 movies. We're going to give it some awards. But until then, Jason, they can find us on social media. They can find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. Find you on Twitter. In the cesspool that is Twitter, you can find me at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And see me progressively get angrier and angrier and angrier as every day progresses. And, uh, you know, sometimes he tweets in slow motion. Do, 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 Are there any TikToks using that song? There must be. Oh, it's got to be. Gotta I don't be. understand TikTok. I'm very old. I, I, I'm assuming it's uh, the place you take to repair your clocks. Oh, I've been looking for a new clock man. My clock man died. Oh. He inhaled a lot of mercury. He used well, to like, fire fire guild clocks. And... I mean, Jason, to be fair, every clock man is median age of 86. So, Well, that's what happens when you go to shit down for your clockwork. <laughs> that's a deep podcast joke, friends, and I'm sure some of you out there appreciate it. So until then, I just have to say to you, well, you can find us on any of your favorite podcatchers. You can. Absolutely. And uh, we're all set for screenandcountry.podbean.com. Yeah. Check us out if you haven't already. And if you haven't, how 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 are you listening to us? You're going to implode my brain. Is but this on Stitcher? Are you being stitched together? What's going on? <laughs> I don't think you know how Stitcher works. I, I thought it's stitched together. Jason, I have to, I have to say something to you. Oh, now. okay. I Same. do. Really do. I really want to hear it. God save the queen. And God save the screen. And for a screen in the country. I'm a Jason. And I'm a Brad. Come on the bag of water. I live my life.